Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, so glad to have you with us on the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Uh, we have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives again today. So grab your stool. We got a lot to talk about. And Jim, uh, our good martini is also a cautionary tale. It's good because a criminal is being justly punished for his crimes. But it's also a cautionary tale to be careful about who you fall in love with. And this one's on the Democratic side. Uh, This is from the CNN version of the story, but everybody's reporting on this. Uh, Broke yesterday afternoon. Disgraced attorney Michael Avenatti was sentenced Monday to 14 years in prison and ordered to pay nearly $11 million in restitution for embezzling millions of dollars from four of his clients as well as obstruction. Avenatti pleaded guilty earlier this year to four counts of wire fraud for each client he stole from and one count of endeavoring to obstruct the administration of the Internal Revenue Code. Prosecutors said he obstructed the IRS's effort to collect $5 million in unpaid payroll taxes for Tully's Coffee. The sentence handed down by federal district judge James Selna will begin after Avenatti completes a five-year prison term he's currently serving after being convicted in two separate trials in New York. So a total of 19 years behind bars, unless for some reason he gets out for good behavior and so forth. Of course, uh, most people in the political realm know him as the former attorney for Stormy Daniels, who he also cheated and she now hates uh, in in her legal action against President Trump. Uh, His most ignominious uh, moment, of course, was uh, representing Julie Swetnick, who uh, accused Brett Kavanaugh of being a gang rapist at high school parties back in the early 1980s. Uh, The mainstream media, when he was mainly the Stormy Daniels attorney, absolutely enthralled with this guy, Jim, to the point where he was being taken seriously as a presidential candidate, as Brian Stelter, formerly of CNN, said right here. Looking ahead to 2020, uh, one reason why I'm taking you seriously as a contender is because of your presence on cable news. If that wasn't enough, uh, Ana Navarro on The View decided he was the equivalent of uh, a member of the Holy Trinity. Lately to me, you're like the Holy Spirit. You are <laughs> all places oh at all God. times, right? <laughs> I mean, you, I, I do. I see you all over cable news. I see you. You know, there is a, a, a seat available if you want to be a co-host at The View. You might, you know, there's people here you can pitch. So, Jim, the left could not have fawned over this guy more. Uh, you and I smelled a rat from the beginning and not just because of his politics. And uh, the, the truth has come out in Michael Avenatti. And he's going to have a lot of time to think about it. So I've said from the beginning that if at any point you treated uh, Avenatti as a major political presidential candidate and somebody you wanted to see in the Oval Office, I don't want you to just admit that you were wrong. I want you to go sit in the corner. You sit in the corner, put on the dunce cap, and just you just think about what you've done, young man or young woman or old man and old woman. You just think about what got you to this point in life where you decided that this guy because he was saying things on cable news that made you happy, because he seemed as angry and impugnatious as you were, that you wanted him to be the next commander-in-chief. And if you're a member of the media and you treated him seriously as a potential presidential candidate, you too should sit in the corner and think about what you did. The other thing I was thinking about, I brought this just very briefly in today's morning, Joel, but just the observation, I do think that the falling in love with Avenatti is... Uh, something akin to the falling in love with Cuomo. Uh, I should I specify Andrew Cuomo, although it is worth noting there probably was a stretch in which CNN's primetime probably featured Andrew Cuomo, Chris Cuomo, and Avenatti. What a, what a murderer's row of shady characters. The other thing is this from the, you know, some of us from the moment we looked at him looked and said, oh, well, I think this guy is a snake oil salesman. 
in large part because he looks like a snake. Um, he looked and sounded and acted the role of the uh, ambulance chasing sleazy. Uh, I think it was, you know, it was a Tucker Carlson who kept calling him the sleazy porn lawyer or something like that. And the idea that he was representing uh, Stormy Daniels and the idea that there was this sordid interaction and payoffs to, you know, uh, to keep for to Stormy Daniels like that. That's what you're looking for. That's what makes you think this is the person who should be in a position of major political responsibility and government. What the hell's wrong with you? So it's good. We won't have to worry about Avenatti anymore. Some of us are not the least bit surprising. I think it was Noam Bloom who said he had tweeted that at some point we're going to see him in the orange jumpsuit. And it was like 2017 or something. It was something really early. Resistance Twitter believed that anybody who came along who was saying the right things about Trump, ipso facto, had to be a good guy. And lo and behold, when you set up that as your criteria, you're going to attract a lot of grifters. Please try to be wiser, America. Yeah, on both sides. That's why people fell in love with Kanye West, because, hey, there's a celebrity. We wouldn't have expected him to say things that are nice about some Republicans. Yeah, that's not the only thing you need to consider. <laughs> Sometimes he said something I agree with. Therefore, I should ignore everything else he's ever said. Yeah. yeah, yeah. People on the right can be a very cheap date, too. So let this be a cautionary tale for everyone when it comes to stuff like this. But uh, yeah, Michael Avenatti, <laughs> he was everybody pretty... left, left, right and center. Be an expensive date. Yes. Yes, exactly. Make them earn it. Make them earn it. All right. On to our great sponsor for today, and that's Omaha Steaks. Talked last week about how we fired up the Omaha Steaks filet mignon burgers on the grill last week. Phenomenal. So flavorful. Very juicy. Good-sized burgers, uh, along with their uh, jumbo franks. I'm telling you, if you want somebody to be really happy about what they get this holiday season, get them a box of Omaha Steaks. Omaha steaks are naturally aged for the ultimate in tenderness, juiciness, and flavor. You can send an assortment of mouth-watering favorites guaranteed to impress, like the legendary butcher's cut filet mignon, the air-chilled boneless chicken, those ultra-juicy burgers, and even easy-to-prepare comfort meals that can be ready in a flash. And remember, it's all backed by an unconditional 100% money-back guarantee. Omaha Steaks is a gift from the heart, a gift that will be remembered with every unforgettable bite. Order with complete confidence today, knowing that you are ordering the very best. Visit omahasteaks.com to save 50% nationwide and use the promo code MARTINI at checkout to get that extra $30 off your order. Minimum order may be required. omahasteaks.com, promo code MARTINI at checkout. omahasteaks.com, promo code MARTINI. All right, on to our uh, bad martini now, Jim. And for folks paying attention to Capitol Hill, the U.S. Senate on the Republican side seems to be doing an awful lot to help Democrats accomplish their lame duck legislative goals here. And there's a number of things we could get into. There's the uh, so-called Respect for Marriage Act. And then yesterday we had uh, Tillis and Cinema uh, unveiling their immigration bill, which is uh, incredibly weak, it seems, from a border security standpoint. But they want to get the amnesty train rolling and they think they need to do that before the end of the year. Uh, and then there's the issue of spending. You may remember that uh, to avoid a government shutdown, they kicked the debate to December like they always do in the lame duck session. And so Republicans have an option here. They can kick it to early January when they'll control the House and presumably have more leverage in the debate. Or you could pass a massive omnibus spending bill now to go through the rest of the fiscal year and tie the hands of the incoming Republican House until next fall. So guess what the Senate Republicans look like they're doing? They look like they're going to go for the omnibus bill. So Kevin McCarthy, 
apparently the incoming speaker, although whether he has the votes is still a question, uh, pushing back on Mitch McConnell's political strategy amid decisions for an omnibus deal with Democrats. This is according to reporting from The Hill. Quote, why would you want to work on anything if we have the gavel inside Congress, said McCarthy. Wait till we're in charge. Democrats have said they want to pass an omnibus appropriations bill during the lame duck session. And some members of the GOP appear poised to get on board with defense spending for Ukraine, among other items. McCarthy disagreed with the bipartisan approach on Fox News, saying that Republicans should wait until they are stronger in every negotiation when they take the majority in the House in January. Quote, we are 28 days away from Republicans having the gavel, he told Laura Ingram. We would be stronger in every negotiation, so any Republican that's out there trying to work with them is wrong. Jim, the idea of getting powers is being able to use it in a way that's advantageous. So to surrender that for basically nine months is ridiculous. You basically leave yourself only one year to negotiate uh, the budget and, and spending on before you get to the presidential election. Makes no sense. Greg, have we been doing this podcast for, is it 11 years or 12 years now? It's over 12 years now, yeah. Over 12. All right, so we're over 12. I am sure we have talked about many omnibus spending bills. Yes, we have. In the course of that time. We've probably used the word omnibus, you know, uh, 200 times at least in the course of this podcast. And I'm going to bet that almost every time I have nearly mispronounced it as ominous. And it fits <laughs> because... Almost all of the omnibuses turn out to be ominous because they basically represent an abdication of governing responsibility. Look, I don't want, you know, uh, appropriations to run out for key things. I understand you don't want the government to hit the debt ceiling. Look, I understand governing is a hard job. And I suspect one of the problem, one of the reasons we're in this mess is that the American people have sent people to Congress who don't see governing as a hard job and who, in fact, aren't all that interested in the governing part of the job. They just want to rabble rouse. They just want to be on social media. They just want to get cable news hits, et cetera. They just want to be stars. They want to be celebrities. All of this, pass the bills, go through the spending, decide what the government should spend on and what they shouldn't and how much is appropriate for each priority, et cetera. Well, that's work. And I'm sure it bores <laughs> many of them. Having said that, that's the job. That's what you signed on for. And the problem with the omnibus is basically it's an, eh, I don't care. It basically, ah, you know, just spend as much as we spent last year, add X percent, just roll it all together and there. And you, it's basically saying, I can't decide. I can't make any decisions about what we should and what we should not spend. I, I look at the entire federal government. It's too big. It's too complicated. Going through it and making judgments and decisions, it's just too hard. Let's just put it into a giant sack and pretend Santa can give us everything we want. That's what an omnibus is. And so that's what's so infuriating about this. Look, I realize that Republicans have limited amount of leverage right now. But the idea of like, well, let's just roll it all into an omnibus, that's one more surrender. I know it's going to be a very busy lame duck session. I know that they have they want to do immigration. They want to do all kinds of other stuff in the middle of all this stuff. But passing the appropriations bills is like the one job laid out in the Constitution. You, you know, everything else you're doing is, is frosting on the cake. The appropriations bills are the cake. And every year it's like, ah, it's just too hard. Throw it all together. Let's all do it. Because you, you know, if you're like, well, I think that's wasteful spending, but it's in the omnibus. Well, you don't have time to put in an amendment to say, let's take that out or let's reduce that spending or something like that. It is a surrender. Ultimately, it is non-governance. It is government by autopilot and the people deserve better. 
Like you said, that is the main job of Congress. It might not be one they like, but it is. But they add a bunch of stuff to it. So this basically doesn't become an issue that was negotiated in committee. It becomes the leadership and maybe the White House getting in there and saying, oh, let's add all of this stuff too uh, and bump up spending here. And then everybody has to vote yay or nay. And it's thousands of pages and you got a day or two to read it and you can't get it all done in that time. And so it just turns into a mess because people aren't uh, doing their jobs. And then people can go back and say, well, I didn't uh, vote for that specific provision. It was up or down. What and did we you expect me to do? It was an omnibus. I didn't have any choice. So, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. But uh, nonetheless, uh, why Republicans are doing this, though, I think is, is the question, Jim. If you're going to have leverage in less than a month, why give it away for nine months? Because otherwise it's hard. <laughs> That is the exact tone, by the way, that Luke Skywalker said he wanted to go to the Tachi station to get power. <laughs> All right, on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And uh, 2024, and that cycle is already upon us since Trump already announced. But uh, plenty of other people thinking about it. We've talked about Mike Pence. We've talked about Nikki Haley. We've obviously talked about Ron DeSantis. We've talked about most Democrats kind of fading into the background like Homer Simpson into the hedges uh, since Biden seems like a stronger bet for the Republicans now. Uh, but given Trump's uh, truth social post that we talked about yesterday and suspending provisions of the Constitution to immediately go to a new election because of what we learned from the Twitter files, uh, John Bolton, his former national security advisor, who, to put it mildly, did not end on good terms with the former president, has said that he is considering a 2024 presidential bid of his own. Now, for those with long memories, Jim, I think this is at least the third time that John Bolton has publicly toyed with a presidential bid, 2012, I think, and then 2016. Ultimately, he didn't do it. I believe he's in his 70s now, and so I think that makes it even more unlikely that he'll do it. If he did run, he would definitely be an afterthought. I don't know if he's just there to get in Trump's face uh, if he did do it, but he would not be a serious contender for the nomination. So what do you make of uh, Bolton's latest uh, public overture about a possible campaign? Now, I like John Bolton. Uh, I've had a chance to chat with him a couple of times. He's done plenty of national review events. Uh, the institution's on a good term with him, and I think very well. I, mean, I think he's a very serious thinker. I think he's somebody worth listening to. I was pleased when he joined the Trump team as the national security advisor. I thought he had a good chance of trying to steer the president in a good direction. Obviously, he had a lot of friction and a great deal of difficulty and basically ended, uh, as you said, yes, left on the worst possible terms. And I say this, you know, as a as a full-fledged fan of John Bolton. John Bolton, you're not going to be president of the United States. And it's not because I think you're, you're, you wouldn't be good at it. And although I do kind of, you know, maybe question of whether he's better suited for an advisory uh, role. Uh, it's not that you're not a good guy. It's not that you're not smart. It's not that you haven't thought about foreign policy extensively. It's just that, you know, you need a certain level of name recognition and charisma and preferably experience in elected office. You are a near perfect secretary of state, near secretary of defense. You're not set out for the top job. But what's even more important is that this very clearly is spurred by Trump's recent decision, you know, statement on, on truth social, terminate the constitution, you know, that, that Bolton is like, Bolton in a way is reacting in the same kind of angry, impulsive response that I'm sure he doesn't like to see in Trump. What I fear, Greg, is that even after the experience of the 2016 Republican presidential primary, in which one of the reasons Trump was won was because the anti-Trump vote was split initially among 16 other options, and it continued to be down to, by the time Trump won the nomination, he was still down to two. And I believe the story goes that T Ted Cruz was like, well, 
you know, it's, it, clearly my campaign's going nowhere. I pushed all my chips onto, was it Wisconsin or was it Indiana? There's one state where I was like pretty clear of, if Ted Cruz didn't win there, he wasn't going to win. He says, all right, I might as well give Kasich a shot. And then Kasich left the next day. <laughs> and oh, by the way, Cruz had said to Kasich, one of us has to leave. Otherwise, Trump's going to get the nomination and Kasich refused to leave. But then Trump quits and then Kasich leaves like the day after. I don't know, but because his dad was a mailman, something like that. But anyway, <laughs> bottom line is there's where we've saw one of the reasons Trump won was because everybody who did like it was split amongst all these other options. And here we are. We have anywhere my get you know, my fear is that you know this is gonna come down to ideally you get down to one Trump option, one non-Trump option. Right now, Ron DeSantis looks like the most likely and I think the strongest non-Trump option. My fear is that anywhere from, I don't know, 6, 12, God forbid, 18, Republicans all look at this circumstance and say, you know, there's only one person who can ensure that we don't split the vote this way. And that person is me. Thus, I'm running for president. And all of them make the same decision the same way at the same time. All of them believe that the only way the Republican Party can be saved, the only way the country can be saved is by them. There's no way they can say, hey, this DeSantis guy looks pretty good. I'm going to see if I can help him out. Nope, nope. So it's, it's got to be them. So I'm hoping we are not. Uh, the Republican Party is not victimized by runaway narcissism in 2024. But Greg, some days I think, as they said in the the series True Detective, time is a flat circle. Everything that's ever happened before is going to happen again and again and again. Hey, happy Tuesday, everybody. <laughs> I think Indiana was the state where that uh, last stand was. That's where Cruz the day of was telling everybody how reprehensible Donald Trump was and. Carly Fiorina was the running mate for the last day or two of the right. campaign. And then uh, and then Kasich bolted at the exact same time. That was that was bizarre. And so that was that was really the the end there in Indiana. That was that was bizarre because Pence very tacitly endorsed Cruz, even though he could see that Trump was going to be the nominee. And obviously he did that endorsement uh, unenthusiastically enough to become the running mate. And now we know where Trump and Pence are. It's a uh, whole thing. But uh, it's a very as odd for- state of affairs where you could say, well, I endorsed Cruz, but I didn't really mean it. <laughs> The question is whether even Bolton, Bolton obviously won't be the nominee if he runs, but could he do enough damage to Trump if he gets in? And I'm pretty skeptical on that front, too. I mean, everybody else on that stage is going to be doing uh, the same thing. Perhaps Bolton can do it from a slightly different angle, although if Mike Pompeo's in there, too, uh, he might be able to kind of do that same shtick. I was going to say, I'm thinking back, John Huntsman chose to run for president in, was it 2012? And he's in Obama's ambassador to China. For a couple of years there. And I remember asking him directly and asking every single time, like, look, and John Huntsman had a terrific resume, but it was like, look, you, you, you worked for Obama. You're running against Obama. And there are a whole bunch of Republicans who hate Obama's guts and think he's the worst thing that ever happened to the country, whether or not he actually was. And they're going to say to you, like, why, why should we vote for you when you agree to work for this guy? And Huntsman himself, I don't remember the exact wording of his response, but it basically was, oh, pshaw, silly Jim. Um, that he very, you know, very much did not believe that would be a significant obstacle to his presidential bid. And a whole bunch of other people were like, no, no, no. And lo and behold, John Huntsman never caught fire for a bunch of reasons. But among them was that he had worked for Obama. And I'm sure a bunch of Republicans were like, how can we trust you? Or, or what, what, why are you, wait, why did you go work for the guy? And then turn around and go choose to run for president against him. Well, here we are again, Mike Pence. Look, the, 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 you can summarize him in a nutshell. The Trump fans don't like him because they think they betrayed Trump in the tw- 2020 post-election dispute and not declaring Trump the victor and all that kind of stuff. And the anti-Trump folks look at Pence as a yes man for four years. So he doesn't have enough. The, the Venn diagram of people who aren't in one of those two categories, the overlap is very small. 
So what? So how do you do that, Mike Pence? I still haven't heard a good answer from anybody who's a fan of Mike Pence. And it's just like, oh, Peshaw, Jim, what do you know? Well, I get that feeling of deja vu again, Greg. <laughs> I'd say third place is a ticket to ride, ladies and gentlemen. That's John Huntsman's line from finishing a distant <laughs> yeah, yeah. third in New I mean, Hampshire. If you like bronze. Hey, Jeb Bush four years later said fourth place was a ticket to ride. Well, he didn't say it directly, but he if you like aluminum. Yeah. <laughs> it got him to South Carolina. Didn't help him any, but uh, it's amazing how people rationalize staying in at some points. But anyway, uh, John Bolton, we'll see what happens. But uh, if history is any guide, I'm guessing in the end he won't do it. But we'll see. Jim, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Order Jim's brand new book, Gathering Five Storms, and the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Uh, Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a terrific Tuesday and join us again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.